Good morning. We are in Proverbs chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 19. Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. And while you're turning or scrolling there, I'd like to make mention of 40 days of prayer that are coming to the Grace family beginning uh, later on this week and uh, kicking off in a formal sense two weeks from now on Saturday morning, October 3, up in the patio under the shade sails from 9 in the morning until 10 o'clock, where we're going to come together and pray. Now, there's a lot of things for which we need to be praying these days. Uh, political rancor, social unrest, all the COVID uncertainties, but before any of these things, we really need to be praying for revival. Uh, revival of our own hearts, revival of our love for Christ, revival of our love for the nations. And so those are the things for which we're going to be praying on October 3, up in the patio from 9 to 10 in the morning. There will be other opportunities for prayer throughout those 40 days, the final one being on uh, the evening of, I think it's November 2, November 2 or 3, it's a Monday night, uh, but more on that later. Well, Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, let me read these uh, verses for us. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunders. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Thus far, God's word. Well, first things are always of special interest. Uh, like in a class on the first day of a semester, uh, the attendance has been taken, uh, the syllabus has been reviewed. What's the first thing that the teacher wants to tell you? Or when you go to the movies and uh, the, the dancing hot dog and popcorn package have gone across the screen and all the previews have been played, what's the first thing that the screenplay writer wants to show you? Or in a book. Uh, you've looked through the acknowledgments, you've read the introduction. Now, what's the first thing that the author wants to tell you? Well, just as first things are of special interest in all those cases, such as the case in the Bible and with Bible books. So in Genesis, what, uh, uh, the first thing to which a reader is introduced is the beginning. 
And that's a thing to which he or she is reintroduced nine more times throughout the book. Or in the Psalms, where the first thing to which the reader is introduced is the blessed man, the wicked man, and the Lord, and then reintroduced to that trio uh, throughout the remaining 149 chapters. Or in the book of Matthew, where the first thing to which the reader is introduced is Jesus as king. In chapter 1, as king of Israel, all the way to the end in chapter 28, where Jesus is now the king and Lord over all things, heaven and earth. So first things are of special importance because first things matter. Two weeks ago uh, this morning, Laura and Malika and Ralph read for us uh, the first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs. Last Sunday morning, Eric Tanis introduced us to those nine chapters, and we learned that the author of these nine chapters is King Solomon, the son of David, and that the purpose of these chapters is to not only know, but to understand wisdom. So now that we've gotten beyond those things, an initial reading, a, a preface, if you will, to the book, What's the first thing that God wants us to know about wisdom in the book of Proverbs? And it's this. Say no to sin. <laughs> Say no to sin. Take a look at verse 8. My son, if sinners or rebels entice you, do not consent. Uh, as a late first lady would have put it, just say no. Now this seems to be a no-brainer because we all want to do right. We don't want to do wrong. But the fact of the matter is we're all rebels. Uh, the book of Romans reminds us of that four times over. No one seeks for God. Therefore, no one understands God. Ergo, no one can please God. And in the book of Ephesians, we read that our rebel hearts affect our entire persons. So everything we think and everything that we do. Why can't we just say no to our rebel hearts? And it's because we come by our rebelliousness honestly. It, it, it's an inherited condition. We were born this way. Uh, our shared multiple great-grandparents got us into this mess when they rebelled from God in an effort to be like God himself. So, so our rebelliousness is really a control issue. God is in rightful control of all things, but we want to be in control. You want to be in control. I want to be in control. We all have control issues. Now, just because we come by this honestly doesn't mean that we can write off our rebelliousness. Well, everybody else does it. It's my right. I'll do me. You do you. No, God doesn't give us any room for excuses. No, he says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So that's the main point 
uh, of this passage for this morning, and we're going to drill down on it in a few moments. But I'd like to begin by uh, noticing a couple of things that we might have otherwise overlooked. Uh, the first thing, in fact, the very first thing being uh, uh, the one who gives wisdom. Uh, that is the primary human agent of wisdom. And we see here that uh, parents are to give wisdom. Both parents are to give wisdom. Take a look at verse number eight. There's an appeal here to uh, uh, hear dad's instruction as well as a warning not to forsake mom's teaching. So as a parent myself, once it, what, what this tells me is, well, my child may get wisdom from a, a Christian youth leader or a Christian school teacher or a Christian camp counselor or a Christian coach or a Christian neighbor or a Christian nanny. My child ought to primarily get wisdom through me. Um, at, at least through me, one parent, and if possible, both parents. Now what this also tells me is that if I want to spend, stand the best chance of being heard by my child, then I need to pay attention to the content and the delivery of my wisdom. Now, as to content, it must be that which is also important to the Lord. So here in chapter 1, dad and mom are speaking to the perils of power. Uh, when we get to chapter 6, we'll see dad and mom again speaking about the sanctity of sex. So when it comes to wisdom and weighing what's most important for my child to hear, um, consider this rule of thumb. If it was important enough for God to write down, then it's important enough for me to pass on to my child, even if it makes me squirm. Because <laughs> there's some things, even in the Bible, that are hard to talk about with our kids. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if I, as a parent, don't talk to my child about these matters, then somebody else either personally or virtually, will. Now, as to the delivery of wisdom, I do well to take my cues from Solomon. So, uh, what I say should be appealing. Uh, no, notice here in this passage what we have. It's a, it's a focused bidding it's a gentle appeal. It's not a finger-wagging session. Solomon's serious about what he's saying, but he's not, he's not grave and somber. You know, kid, if you don't do this, your fingers are going to shorten, your teeth are going to fall out, and it just, it's going to get worse from there. No, this is, it's, well, it, let's see what it is. It, it's compelling. It's thoughtful. It, it's clear. We're going to look at this in greater detail in a moment, but for now, just notice how Solomon develops this passage. Uh, to begin, there's a rule. We see that there in verse number 10. If sinners entice you, then do not consent. Then there's an example given in verses 11 through 14. Here's what they're going to say to entice you. 
then there's a response made in verse 15. Here's what you should do to combat their enticements. And then there's a reason given for the response. Here's why you should respond that way. We see that there in verses 16 through 18. And finally, in verse 19, there is a result. Do not consent to their enticements because here's what's going to happen to them. Their end is not a happy one. It will not turn out well. So a thoughtful delivery anticipates and answers that inevitable question that comes from a child in a conversation like this, which is, but why? <laughs> why do I have to do that? So if I want to stand the best chance of being heard by my child, then I want to pay attention to content and delivery. Further, as a parent, what this passage also tells me is that if I'm going to be giving wisdom to my child, then I need to be receiving wisdom, and that by way of God's word. Jason Oaks is going to uh, show us this a couple of weeks from now from chapter 2, where we read that the Lord is the source of all wisdom. 2, 6, and 8 says he gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So on, on any given day, the, the best time that you can give your child is first the time that you give to the Lord. And second, the time that you can then give to your child. Because if, if you're not receiving from the Lord, then you've got Nothing of enduring value to share with your child. Finally, and one of my own adult children pointed this out to me, and I appreciate it. As a parent, they should tell me that as much as I love my child, as much as I can cut my child slack because I can see through so much to that loving little heart and now, as much as I love my child, I have to remember, I have to be convinced even that she or he is inherently rebellious and is as much in need of God's wisdom as I am. Now, while this passage as a parent tells me all of these things, I got to be quick to add that as a parent, I didn't always get it right. In fact, uh, the daughter who carefully reminded me that uh, children are rebels at heart uh, kindly suggested that I didn't always dispense wisdom as I should have or could have. So I, I wanted to be clear that uh, when it comes to the aforementioned five considerations for parents, I'm as much a learner in all of this as I am a teacher. That's a beautiful thing about Bible teaching. We all, even the teacher, stands underneath its authority. Now, the second thing that could have easily been overlooked in this passage is the fact that while parents are to give wisdom, children are to receive wisdom. We see it there right up front. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. So, a word to the children here. Children, as your parents, 
seek to gently and thoughtfully instruct you from God's word, listen to them. Learn from them. I find it interesting that when the Apostle Paul spoke to Timothy concerning his family resemblance, he didn't say, you know, your appearance reminds me of your mother's and your grandmother's. No, rather he said, your faith reminds me of the faith that formerly dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. That's the resemblance between you and your parents that's most important to the Lord. Paul wrote to the children at Ephesus, children, obey your parents. Wait for it. In the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is why if your parents say, kill for me, steal for me, lie for me, you wouldn't do it. A child should never be obligated to do anything that violates God's word, especially if it's being asked of him or her by a parent. In fact, for such a parent or anyone who would require such a thing of a child, Jesus has a word for you. And it's this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better, better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, if you have ever incurred such an indignity and have suffered for it over the years, then I want to encourage you to reach out, reach out even this morning to someone with whom you came or someone that you know here, uh, if you don't know anybody, meet with one of our elders or a member of the prayer team under the shade tree after the service so that we can put you in touch with a person who can provide uh, hope and help in coming through a very dark and uh, diabolical thing. Well, another thing that a child can learn from this passage is the importance of saying yes to God's wisdom and no to the world. What's, what's the first thing that the son is told to do by his father? Take, take a look at verse 10. Do not consent. Just say no. Well, what are the first three marks of the blessed man in Psalm 1? They're, they're the first things right out of the box in that whole book. The, the blessed man says no to the counsel of the wicked, no to the way of sinners, no to the seat of scoffers. He just says no. So saying yes to God means saying no to the world. But it doesn't have to mean that life stinks. Because yet another thing that a child can learn from this passage is that saying yes to the wisdom of God brings with it blessings. We see that here in verse 9, where wisdom is described as a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. That is, wisdom is it's a thing of honor, it's a thing of beauty. It's like an Olympic medal. It has gravitas all of its own. Uh, others are naturally drawn to it. 
We're going to see this throughout the remainder of chapter 1 and right down to the end of chapter 9, where the dividends of wisdom are realized in any one of a number of ways, including a heightened knowledge and understanding of God's word, uh, an enriched length and quality of life, uh, favor among others, and stability uh, within yourself. So those are a couple of things that are so obvious that they can go unnoticed. Uh, they can be hidden in plain sight. Parents are to give wisdom. Children are to receive wisdom. Wisdom is introduced in and nurtured by the family unit. One's biological family and or, because not everyone has a God-fearing biological family, one's spiritual family, the local church the Grace family. So now let's uh, peruse this passage as we begin to come in for a landing here, according to the way that uh, Solomon spoke it to his son first, as is already mentioned in verse number 10 there, um, he puts forth a rule, a rule. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Second, there's an example in verses 11 through 14. He says, um, here's how they'll entice you. It comes in a couple of parts. First, there's an appeal. Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent. Let us swallow them alive. And then that's followed by a rationale to the appeal. For we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. We will all have one purse. So if we're doing nothing or very little, we're going to gain a lot. Now, my question is, who says that kind of a thing? Who are these people? Well, while we are all sinners, the kind of sinner about which Solomon is speaking here is um, a, a person who is an, a, an habitual sinner, a chronic sinner, a regular sinner. Sinner. Their lifestyle is characterized by sin. In fact, chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that these people enjoy evil and they delight in perverseness. To pervert something. You know, to pervert something means to take that which is good and twist it and thereby make it bad. So, well, Power can be used for selfless ends and everybody's good. We see there in verses 11 through 13 that power can be perverted. It can be twisted. It, it can be used for selfish ends. My good. Further, notice that this is not the appeal of a lone voice. This is just not one whisper, whisper, but, but that of um, a group. This enticement comes from a chorus of individuals. So children, this is why your parents care about who you're hanging with. The sort of people that, that you spend your days with. It's one of the last things we learned in the book of 1 Corinthians. During that recent preaching series, chapter 15, verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, we don't really know what kind of a group this is, but we do know 
that it's a kind of a group to which any of us could be attracted. Remember, this is the matter of first importance to Solomon, to God, in this book. So, So this kind of an enticement is something to which we might all succumb. But again, what, what kind of group is this? Well, it could be gang members, could be playground bullies, could be political thugs or academic malcontents, it could be social media contributors or gaming enthusiasts, could be a gang of office whisperers or church splitters. As one scholar put it, There are many legal, polite, even religious ways of saying, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. But what is this all about? It's about pride and envy and greed and jealousy and retaliation. Deep in every heart is a kind of bloodlust. Song that's recently gained a a degree of notoriety in certain circles satirically puts it like this. There's a little Hitler inside of you. There's a little Hitler inside of me. There's a brutal killer inside of everyone. The hatred grows inside us naturally. Well, first there's the rule, then there's the example of uh, uh, rule-breaking enticement, and then third, there's the response. We see that in verse number 15. Solomon says, here's what you should do to combat their enticements. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your feet from their paths. So it's going to require a little holy sweat. In my years of ministry, my experience uh, with people tends to be like this. They view holiness as a, as a rather personal and passive matter. It, it, it's as if God, God's holy hand is going to come down and lift them up out of their temptation and then put them down in a safe place. But in this passage, holiness, that, that is resisting temptation to choose the right way, walking down the good path. It's an active thing, and it's a community thing. It's a pursuit that's informed by a faithful God by way of his word, and then supported by loving parents, who along with other biological and spiritual family members, stand by their child. So that's the right response to the enticement of sinners. But next, Solomon offers the right reason behind that response. And it's simply this. The enticement of sinners is a lie. It's a lie. In verses 11 through 14, they say it's all going to be precious goods, plunder, share and share alike, the good life for everybody. But in reality, verse 17 tells us that these men are stupider than animals. And in verse 18, we read that these men who lie in wait for the blood of others actually lie in wait for their own blood. (laughs) They're setting an ambush for their own lives. Sin lies. It fails to deliver on any of its promises. Whenever I think of the deceptiveness of sin, I always think of my dad who was uh, pulling late night KP duty uh, one evening at Fort Gordon down in Augusta, Georgia. 
and he uh, stole away to dig out a big bowl of ice cream that he had earlier found and hid in the back of the freezer. Well, the problem was when he put that first big scoop of ice cream into his mouth, he realized that he was actually wolfing down a spoonful of lard. <laughs> By all appearances, the white, creamy, fluffy deliciousness appeared to be ice cream. But it failed to deliver on its promise. And that's like sin. For me, the most memorable words of Frederick Beekner were those that he wrote about anger and its failure to deliver on its promise. Beekner wrote this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Sin lies. It always fails to deliver on its promises. Verse that arguably made the biggest impact on me as a high schooler was Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And it is. Which brings us to the final part of this passage, following the rule and the enticement and the response and the reason is finally the result of sin, which is death. Guaranteed death. Verse 19 tells us, such are the ways of everyone, everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So what's of first importance in the book of Proverbs? To say no to sin because sin lies. It promises the good life, but in the end, it delivers certain death. But in closing, we've got to ask the question, is that always true? I mean, really, is that, does it always work out that way? I mean, there are those who revel in their rebelliousness and get away with it. And for quite some time, though it may catch up with them, there's Bernie Madoff who's spending the rest of his life in prison for his financial exploits, or Jeffrey Epstein, who died in prison for his sexual exploits, or your uh, 20th century dictator of choice, uh, Hitler, Ceausescu, Hussein, you name it, uh, who were killed at their own hand, or that of others for their power exploits. They got away with all of their evil for a long time. But then there are those who revel in their rebelliousness and seem to have entirely gotten away with it or, or will entirely get away with it. What about them? What about those rebels? What about you? <laughs> Maybe you're one of those rebels. You, you got everyone fooled. 
You're reaping the benefits of your cunning ways. Nobody's on to you, and there's no human chance that they ever will be. Well, in closing, consider the following, which is based upon your understanding of life. That is, is life only that which is contained between the two dates on a grave marker, or is life more than that? Is it longer than that? Judas Iscariot had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But the true character of that relationship was realized when he was enticed by a group of rebels for money to betray his, his friend, which he did. So that the rebels who were in the words of verse 11, lying in wait for blood, could ambush the innocent Jesus and swallow him alive, which they did on one Friday afternoon. Now, if you understand life is limited to what's in between the dates on a grave marker, then the rebels in this story are the winners. Jesus is the loser, and Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 19, is empty. But if you understand life to be more than that, that is, if you, if you realize that life transcends death, then you've got to hear the rest of the story, which is rooted in history. <laughs> because by Sunday morning, three days after Jesus had been killed, it was the rebel Judas Iscariot who was dead and his victim, Jesus Christ, who was alive. The resurrection of Jesus puts rebels on notice that their rebellion has been conquered by Jesus' death. Their enticements are empty. Their rewards are fleeting. Their attractiveness is all a lie. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, even if it's after the life that we're currently living. But more than that, the resurrection of Jesus is an invitation to every rebel, even, even you and I with our inherently rebel hearts. It's an invitation to every rebel that want to share in the death of Jesus, which paid for our rebellion, no matter how great and small, great or small. And we can do that by faith and thereby share in the life of Jesus, which knows no end. One who believes in Jesus, though he is dead, yet shall he live. And yet while we live in this life, we can enjoy abundance and peace and power over the enticements of sinners, as well as the guilt of their sins. How beautiful is that? It doesn't get any more beautiful than that. And if you'd like to pray with someone about that life-transforming invitation, then I'd encourage you to meet with an elder or a member of our prayer team right after this prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, which is not hidden from us, but revealed in plain sight by way of this book. And help us, we pray, to take to heart the very first thing about which you speak, which is the importance of resisting sin. We're so grateful for family members either in our biological family or here in our spiritual family who can teach us and help us and stand alongside of us in resisting sin. And most of all, we thank you for the glorious gift of salvation, being free from the penalty of sin, 
and able to live a life that is one of abundance and peace and fruitfulness. Lord, we are so grateful, and we thank you for it, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.